Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us here on INC Live for the UFC 267 preview show. My name is Carl Bainbridge, and joining me on the right-hand side of my screen, he is the conspiracy to my Phoebe, he is the Brian Campbell to my Luke Thomas, it's John Marsh in MMA. John, thank you once again for joining us. What's up, everybody? Thanks for having me back on the INC Live channel, Carl. Always excited to do these pay-per-view breakdowns, and we got back-to-back -back pay per views I think this is the first time in UFC history, 267 this week. We're back right next week with 268. It's going to be a crazy back-to-back -back week. There are some insane fights on both of these cars. They're stacked from top to bottom, so we're going to have some good podcasts, and there's going to be some fights these next few weeks. Certainly hope so as well, and bearing in mind some of the quality of some of these fight night cards, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail, we almost owed one. We almost owed that sort of big, epic supercard, and potentially we could have two in a row. We will be talking about the first of those in just a few moments' time, which is, of course, UFC 267. Before we do, though, we're going to be talking about some of the stories and some of the happenings which have been happening in the world of MMA over the past couple of weeks. The first place we're going to be starting is we know two of our upcoming title fights in December. It's been rumoured for a long time, but it is finally happening Charles Oliveira making the first defense of his lightweight title up against Dustin Poirier. And then to kick off 2022, heavyweight title fight, Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Garn. We'll obviously be talking about these fights in a lot more detail coming up. But on first impressions, John, where do you stand on these two title fights? Um, I mean, they're incredible. You know, we're in this era where we're getting a lot of rematches and trilogies. It was supposed to be the Aljamain and Jan rematch. There's the Moreno trilogy. We just had the DC trilogy. Usman and Covington are rematching. I mean, the list goes on and on of all these rematches. And we got two fresh title fights, two fresh guys who haven't fought each other yet. And they're incredible matchups. The, the betting lines are close on both fights. That means both fights are being perceived as competitive by the public. And, you know, they're as good as matchups you can ask for. Number one and number two in both divisions. And, you know... I have no complaints about these these UFC fights for uh, these UFC title fights for a change because they're just insanely great matchups. Can't wait for both of them. If you were pushed on which one you were looking forward to more, which would you say? Dustin Poirier, baby. I mean, I I I'm excited by gain. Um, you know, bringing some fresh life to the heavyweight division. Um, but if you listen to me before on this on the show, you know I prefer the lower weight classes. I just think they're more skilled fighters, to be honest. And Poirier, I believe, is the uncrowned king at 155. I respect and love Charles Oliveira. I really recognize the improvements he's made as of late. But to see those guys go at it is going to be a, a stylistic, incredible matchup. I, I recognize that either guy could lose. So I'm just looking forward to that one a little bit more. How about you? I'm certainly looking forward to both of those matchups. I think that in terms of what I think is actually going to be the more technical fight, the more professional fight, I would lean towards the lightweight bout, uh, Oliveira versus Dustin Poirier. But there's so many unknowns surrounding Ngannou versus Cyril Garn because you've got a guy in Francis who has so much power who can just turn anyone's lights off with one punch against the guy who... But heavyweight standards is just doing things in Cyril Garn that you just don't see. You don't see a heavyweight fighter at 250 pounds with the level of footwork that he does. Can he keep that sort of style going for 25 minutes, knowing that Francis connects once, his, his night's over? Yeah, I think that's, you know, the biggest question about this is, is 
Ngana going to be able to get inside close enough to land that big power of his. And the fact that these guys have trained together a lot before probably goes into the favor of Gan. You know, most of the problem with fighting Ngana is he's so intimidating and, um, you know, ferocious. But the fact that uh, Gain has gotten a lot of sparring rounds in with him, I think that's going to, you know, increase Gain's confidence and the uh, the betting line actually has the challenger gain the interim champion as the favorite right now. So it seems like the public thinks that uh, that Gon does have that footwork, that striking, that cardio to avoid that big power shot for five rounds. And you know I'm intended to lead in the same way. Um, but you know you always had that equalizer power of Ngana, which makes all of his matchups so exciting. So we'll be breaking down that fight in a month or two. But you know I can't wait for that one. Certainly so, and I, I can't wait for UFC 267 trying to get this a little bit back on topic here. It's an interesting card in that, obviously, when you think the numbered pay-per-views, the numbered headliners, uh, that you often think it's going to be on pay-per-view, $60, $70, or whereabouts to actually watch the whole thing. This time around, though, a combination of factors, namely UFC 268 taking place the week after, the UFC, for the first time since UFC 138, will make this one free of charge. What's your opinion on this, John? Is this the UFC doing a, a favor to the fans, a big thank you letter to them? Or is it purely business related? They know the fans aren't going to pay for this card when they got the big one, Usman Covington, the week after. Yeah, I really don't know what to make of why they're doing this, honestly. I think this is definitely a card that you could charge as a pay-per-view. I mean, you got two title fights, even though one is technically an interim title fight. Um, you've got a stack card. You've got a lot of uh, Russian talent. Maybe that's why they're doing it, because it, it's mostly Russian fighters, only two American fighters on the card in, in its entirety. So I really... Um, I'm really not sure why they're doing this with the pay-per-view, so I don't have a, a good answer to that. What's your theory on it, Carl? I've got three reasons. I think, number one, I think UFC 268 being a week later, it's two pay-per-views in two weeks, and even the most die-hard dedicated fan is not going to pay, uh, what would it be, $120, $130 to watch both shows. Um, I also think it's an earlier start time with it being over in Abu Dhabi. Uh, they did that with the Khabib pay-per-views, and... The numbers weren't great. I think there were about 500, 600,000 uh, pay-per-view buys, which is still an okay number, but considering the star power of Khabib, could have potentially done over a million had it been in the US. And also as well, and this is the part that I hate to say, given I like both guys involved, Jan Blachowicz and Glover Tashira just aren't big-name fighters. Yeah, that that is sadly true about those two guys. But I mean, it's a... It's an incredible matchup. I mean, all, all the real diehard fans are looking forward to this one. They've seen Glover Teixeira lose that title shot back in 2014 and work his way back up. So it's kind of a, a fun Cinderella story in MMA. I know you're always a big fan of, of you know, the underdog working his way back up to the title shot, Carl. And I kind of question what this, where the pay-per-views were scheduled back to back from was that always the plan i mean how did that even happen um i think honestly it just has something to do with the fight island schedule maybe um they wanted to get the fight island event in before thanksgiving christmas before all the holidays and this was the only time the fight island was available maybe that's the, the reason why 
But, uh, you know, I'm glad they're going back to Fight Island. Hopefully they'll do it a lot more in 2022 because, I mean, we were at Fight Island several times in 2020. We were there in the beginning of 2021, and then it's been almost 10 whole months since we've been back to Fight Island. So these international fighters, these Russian fighters, really struggling to get these spots in the UFC card. So hopefully they can go back uh, to Fight Island more in 2022. And maybe it's oversaturation, but if I had to push, I prefer Fight Island over the Apex. Yeah, definitely a cooler feel. You know, you got um, the bigger arena, the bigger cage. Um, it feels a, a lot cooler when you travel. I remember, um, you know, I had someone who listened to my podcast, and they they remember, they said that, uh, you know, when the UFC traveled from place to place, it made the events so much easier to follow because you always had that name. You always had that name of the new city. It's kind of a new, interesting setting. But when it's in the apex over and over again, the events kind of lose a lot of their unique feel. So it's good we're getting back on the road. Certainly so. And we're going to be talking about some of those prelim fighters. You mentioned before we've got a lot of Russian fighters on the card. You can see those on the screen right now. The rundown as things stand right now, this card is subject to change. A uh, couple of interesting names, which and interesting fights, I should say, which stand out for me. Now, if you need an example of how quickly momentum in MMA can change, look at the first fight there on the ESPN prelims. Going into 2021, you could make an argument Amanda Hebas was the big breakout star in waiting in the UFC strawweight division. A lot of people were talking about her as a potential champion. She loses that fight against Marina Rodriguez, bearing in mind the year Marina's had no shame in that. And yet here she is, no fanfare, 11th ranked, going up against Werner Janjirobe. It's, um, it's a sign of just how fickle the sport can be. Yeah, rough turn of events. I think to add even more to it, she was winning that round one versus Marina. She was a minus 300 favorite going into that fight. I'm sure she was a bigger favorite in the live lines. And then all of a sudden, one punch from Marina sends her down. She ends up getting TKO'd. Um, horrible stoppage by referee Herb Dean there, as usual, if you go back and rewatch that. But uh, now she's getting another extremely tough matchup, Jane Daroba. But... Um, you know, incredible female matchup. I mean, these two are two really skilled women in the UFC. Huge fan of Jane Dradoba and her grappling style. And I think that it's going to match up with Rebos in an interesting way. So um, I think this is probably the best matchup on the entire prelims. I may be excited to see uh, one or two fighters a little bit more. Um, but in terms of an equally matched matchup, this is, you know, really gr good. And it's pretty much as good as prelims get. So uh, that's a really strong fight to be going into the pre. Uh, the main card with i'm glad you shared the verna love as well i think she is incredibly underrated and if you look at the people who she's been facing in the ufc outside the ufc her only two losses carla Esparza on short notice and that was a one round fight so it was 29 28 and mackenzie dern who again fantastic grappler and uh, no shame in losing to her i know that mackenzie just lost and her stock's a little bit lower but again no shame in losing to mackenzie dern went the distance with her i think she is I will put it this way, and I don't want to sound upsetting to people. I've, Werner is a quirky-looking girl. Had she been in the UFC, I, I mean, mm -hmm. had she looked a little bit more conventional, she would have been in the UFC years ago. I think there's a real superficial side to women's MMA, and I think, unfortunately, she's a victim of that. 1,000%, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, she's got that unique look. Um, she's got the the hat with you know the feather in her cap or whatever. I don't know what it is, but I love it. And the woman knows how to grapple. Really fun fight versus Murata last fight. She literally snapped her arm with an arm bar, and the she tapped out, and the referee didn't see it. So Jane Dodoba just knocked her out afterwards. Um, so you know she showed that ferocious side to her in her last fight. Broke her opponent's arm and then knocked her out after. Who are the names outside of that? What um, other prelims are you uh, looking forward? Yeah. I, I was just about to ask the same thing. Um, outside of that main prelim headliner, <laughs> what other uh, fights are you looking forward to? Um, so we got uh, some of Khabib's uh, you know, friends, prospects on this card. Tagir, Ula, and Bekov. Really fun flyweight kicking off the first fight of the night. Um, Demir Ismagulov, uh, I believe, is undefeated in the UFC 4-0. Um, with some pretty good wins facing in Magomed Mustafa. I have really good matchup there. Um, Albert Durayev making his UFC debut, coming off a win on the Contender Series. He's another guy, kind of like Chemaev, possibly even a better version of Chemaev, who has just suffocating top pressure, great wrestling, and nasty ground and pound. I mean, he beat the pulp out of his opponent on his Contender Series fight recently. So, um, and then last but not least, uh, Zaleski Dos Santos, a veteran with, you know, 10 plus UFC fights. Unfortunately, he's facing a UFC debut fighter here, so it's not the most intriguing matchup, but Zaleski's always an entertaining fighter. Glad to see him back in action. I think for me, the guy I'm what looking you, forward Carl? to, Anybody you're looking forward to? the guy I'm looking forward to is, uh, Lerone Murphy. I think Lerone Murphy, obviously being a Brit, mm. I am a little bit biased towards these guys who come in through cage warriors, etc. but uh, 10 wins, no losses. He's had the one draw on his record so far. Looked solid so far in the UFC. And he's going up against a guy in Ami Akani who he's almost sort of like this sort of top 20 gatekeeper. I've seen a lot of guys who the UFC are quite high on. People like Shane Burgos, etc. And they all nearly always seem to go through Ami Akani to see whether or not they're worthy of being considered for sort of like the top 10, top 15 guys. So I'm intrigued by that one. Yeah, me too. Leroy Murphy, very fun fighter. Um, not the greatest grappler, but he knows how to get back up from those takedowns. He knows how to make the fight dirty. You saw that in his UFC debut against uh, a guy I just mentioned, Zubaira. And, and yeah, probably one of the prospects coming out of uh, of England right now. Jai Herbert got a nice knockout win last night, but I think Leroy Murphy is probably one of the, uh, I'd say, probably top three, top five prospects prospects and uh he's coming in on short notice too it was supposed to be amir Khani versus tristan Connolly, and unfortunately for makwan he got a much much tougher opponent so um Liron's a pretty heavy favorite going to this fight and it's probably going to justify that and win this so i'm looking forward to that one as well carl certainly so and we can't mention we can't forget jack shaw either jack shaw in terms of british prospects uh, isn't he from wales though well, or yeah, you, England, you, uh, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. No, we're, we're, we're one big happy family, uh, okay. the Brits. Well, at least that's what I, I, see, I say. I see. Maybe you should just claim all of Europe while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Europe have a big problem with the Brits for some reason. I'm not going to get into that one. It's not a politics show. <laughs> Uh, well, we got a British uh, fighter, Kamzat Shemaev, on the card later. That, that'll be interesting. <laughs> we'll get to that one. We will get to Hamzat coming up, though. Uh, for now, though, we've got a battle between Russia and Switzerland, those big rival nations there, in our light heavyweight bout kicking off the main card. It is Magomed Ankalaya versus Volkan Uzdemir, number seven versus number eight. Now, when I hear people talking about UFC 267, 
they're obviously going to mention the main event, uh, the core main between Jan and Sandhagen, Hamzat's big return. Nobody is talking about Ankalaya versus Volkan. And this fight potentially, if both guys perform as well as they potentially can, this, this could very well be the fight of the night. I'm really high on this one. Yeah, that's how good this card is. You know, I think the top three fights are the most uh, exciting. Then Chemayev comes in. And then you kind of forget that we have two top 10 matchups in Ankalaev Ozdemir and Volkov Tabura. Both of them are kind of flying under the radar. Those fights could be, you know, um, the main card or the third fight on a pay-per-view. They could be main event uh, fight night headliners or something. You know, those are really quality fights. And I agree that it's kind of going under the radar. Um I thought Ankalaev was a little bit exposed in that last fight against Nikita Krylov. Didn't really like a lot what I saw from him, even though he did scrape by a decision victory. Um, I thought that, you know, that really kind of diminished Ankalaev's championship hopes um, for the future, honestly. And I think Ozdemir can pose a lot of problems um, for Ankalaev. Ozdemir hasn't fought since he got knocked out by Jiri back at UFC 251. So that was you know, well over a year ago, he's taken a long time off. And I think Vulcan has that type of style where he, he blitzes, he makes the fight dirty. He can maybe hit a takedown or get some dirty boxing going. And I think he can make Ankalaev uncomfortable. So, um, the line has this one Ankalaev as a three to one favorite. I think that's a little bit off. So it should be a competitive fight. Um, I think I'll pick Ankalaev by decision. Um, but I think it'll be like a 29, 28 close decision. What about you, Carl? What are you thinking about this light heavyweight fight? I think it's a very interesting fight. I'm maybe a bit more high on Ankalaev than what you are. Uh, personally, I'm I'm actually a bit surprised that the UFC aren't getting behind him in the same way they are people like Yuri. Because like everyone's saying, oh, Rakic, Yuri, in terms of all like light heavyweight's future. And yet you look at Ankalaev, 15-1. and one, His only loss in the UFC was that last-minute submission by my boy Paul Craig. And you were thinking if... Last second submission. Last second submission. And Paul Craig would probably have got caught if he lost that fight as well. So, which just goes to show the sort of circumstances that can happen in the sport. But yep. in my opinion, if that doesn't happen, let's say Ankalaev has 15 and 0, he's going to be fighting like the Anthony Smiths and those sort of sort of top five gatekeeper types and be considered at the same level as Yuri and Rakic and being spoken about as a title threat. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're building him very slow, right? I mean, he fought um, Lungambula, Abreu, not the most well-known guys. Then he kind of wasted a year of his life on the Kulaba fights. Um, that should have been, you know, dealt with a lot earlier. Um, and then I think he made his American debut against Krylov, if I'm correct. So I think that was a uh, – actually, maybe maybe I just completely made that up. But I feel like um, – no, yeah, you're right. Uh, I did make that up. He fought in uh, the first Kudalaba fight was in America. So the fact that he's got an American passport now, he's fighting in America, I think that's going to go a long way. And, uh, you know, how much closer can he get to the top of the division? I guess if he beats Ozdemir, maybe they match him up with Smith next. But, I mean, this guy's going to be knocking on the top three of the division if he wins this fight. So they're going to have no choice but to match him uh, with a, a, a fellow top five guy in his next fight. Of course, he is just one part of this matchup, though. We've also got Volkan Uzdemir, former title challenger. He was another guy who, almost the opposite, with Ankalaev, they took the real slow approach to try and build him up to the main event. With Volkan, it was free fights. He came in on short notice against OSP, won that one by split decision, and then it was like 
two 30-second knockouts and they throw them in against Daniel Cormier. So they took the opposite approach. And as, as, as much as I do like Volkan, I like a lot of his sort of fundamentals. I think he's a very solid kickboxer. It was a big mistake from the UFC to throw him in against that level of opponent. And to an extent, he got found out up against DC. Yeah, that was interesting how they take those different approaches as you pointed out sometimes it's a slow build sometimes they're just get right in there three fights in the ufc um 16 minutes of cage time in the ufc and he's fighting for a ufc ufc undisputed title so but looking at uh ozdemir's record i thought that he lost that rakish fight so it's very possible that he is one in five in his past six fights um i thought he lost the reyes fight and the rakish fight both of those were split decisions and his only win is over a guy in Ira Latifi who has moved up to heavyweight since then. So um, Manawa has retired. Serkinov has uh, gone down. And Ovin St. Pru has uh, gone up. So now I don't think that Volkan has beaten a single active light heavyweight, um, which, you know, is surprising. I, I don't think the guy's record is speaks for how uh, good of a fighter he is. I think his, he is a little bit better of a fighter than his record indicates. But still, in terms of recent activity, you're not seeing a whole lot of positive stuff out of Ozdemir. I will say when Volkan is on his game, though, he can cause people a lot of problems. I personally think the fight he did win in his recent run, the Latifi fight, that to me was his best performance. I think he looked very good in that match. And you can have some questions about... Mm -hmm how good Latifi is. I think he was maybe a bit overranked at the time they fought, but a very solid performance. I think even though I personally scored the Rakic fight against Volkan, he did a lot of good work ex uh, exploiting the leg games. So a lot of kicks. He caused Rakic a lot of issues with his low kicks. And I can see a very similar sort of approach against mm -hmm. It's He's a good gauge to see how, how solid Ankalaev is. And I think that's why the UFC have booked this match. Yeah, but uh, the one thing about the leg kicks, I think um, that is one of Ozdemir's best weapons. He used it a lot against Jiri, but the fact that Ankalaya's southpaw, their legs are going to be opposite. It's going to be a, a little bit harder for him to get that calf kick going. He's not going to be able to hit that outside leg. So one of his big weapons is going to be taken away. And I think that Ozdemir is probably going to have to wrestle to have some success here. Um, but the issue for him is that he doesn't have great wrestling himself. And Ankalaev just took down Krylov se several times. So we could see some takedowns on either side here. And uh, that's why I'm going to be picking Ankalaev to win a 29-28 decision. What about you, Carl? I'm in the same board. I'm going to go 30-27 for Ankalaev. I think that if I had to choose between the two who was the better striker, I would go for Ankalaev. And as you mentioned before, if there is a tendency to use a wrestling game, that's where Ankalaev's going to go. I don't think Volkan is going to lean on that side of his game as much as what Ankalaev could potentially do. So I'm going to pick Ankalaev to win this one 30-27. I can maybe see a knockdown in sort of the second or the third round, but Volkan holding on and that's how it ends. Judges scored this one quite comfortably for Ankalaev. Nice. I like the pick. Well, I certainly hope so, because if we didn't, if we didn't like each other's picks, it would just be us bickering for the whole show, and no one wants to see that. You know, I, heard, I actually heard lots of people tune in just to hear that, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, maybe we'll disagree later on the program. 
So we move on to fight number two here and we are going down to the welterweight division where China's best male fighter Li Zhengliang is back in action. He scored himself a big win the last time we went to Abu Dhabi up against Santiago Ponzinibbio and he is facing a guy who in 2020 just took the sport completely by surprise. Of course remember the last time we went to Fight Island back in 2020 John Phillips' opponent pulls out and on a couple of weeks' mortars, they bring in this unknown Swedish guy who'd been based in Dagestan. Hamza Chemaev comes in, dominates that fight, and the latest UFC hype train begins in earnest. Yeah, it seems like a, a long time ago, though, doesn't it? I mean, it was 13 months since Chemaev last fought. Um, and, he, you know, people have kind of forgot about him. He was supposed to fight Leon Edwards a few times. But I think this matchup is a little bit better for him. You have an established welterweight like Jing Liang. Um, but he's also not like a top two, top three welterweight like Leon Edwards was. That matchup was a little bit too much too soon. Even if you think Chemayev would have beaten Leon, I don't think he deserved to fight a top three welterweight in his second welterweight fight in the UFC. But I'm glad you gave some credit to Jing Liang. I do agree. Uh, China's best male fighter coming off of a nasty knockout over Ponzinibbio. And uh, Ponzinibbio bounced back and won his fight right after that. And, you know, that kind of makes Jing Liang's win look even better. So I like the way they match these two guys up. And that was the fight against Baezu as well. And that's, in my opinion, one of the fights of the year. Yep, my, me too. I think it's my number one fight of the year, uh, Ponzinibbio versus Baeza. What I've been interested to see when it comes to Shemaev, though, and it's almost symbolic of a lot of fighters who really get the UFC sort of seal of approval, which is you're almost in the sort of middle ground where regardless of what the UFC does, they're never going to satisfy everyone. Because if you book Hamzat against opponents which are quite low-ranked, you got people saying, well, the UFC are trying to protect him. They're giving him easy matches. You give him against someone like Leon Edwards, like the UFC wanted to do, you got people saying, well, he's, the, he's Dana White's pet. They're trying to push him to the UFC title as quickly as he can. Like, even though they've done the right thing in booking him against Leach, which I think is like number 11 ranked, etc. you've still got people out there coming in saying, well, they've only booked this fight because Leach is stylistically a dream matchup for Hamzat. So I think regardless of what the UFC do, they're never going to win. Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody who criticizes this matchup, uh, I don't think they really know what they're talking about. I think this is a really good matchup, honestly. Um, the only thing I think you have to question is... Um, the pattern that Chimaev is going through, you know, he fights welterweight versus Phillips, uh, uh, welterweight versus McKee, and then right back to middleweight versus Mearshart. And now he's right back down to welterweight. We got to pick a division. You know, we got to settle down on one of these divisions. And personally, I think it's a mistake to be fighting at 170. I mean, if you look at the top of 170, you have Gilbert Burns, who's a, a, you know, a great grappler. Um, Colby Covington, Leon Edwards, Kamara Usman, Jorge Masvidal, you have guys who are either good grapplers or pretty good at dealing with grapplers. Meanwhile, at top of 185, you have really Whitaker and Adesanya, really the two top ones. I mean, I know we saw uh, Vittori last night having good success, but I think that especially when you look at the champion of each division, I think Chimaev matches up much better with Adesanya, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. So I don't think I really like him at uh, welterweight, but I'm, I'm interested to see how he does. And I think... It the other thing with Hamzad as well that I think intrigues a lot of people and also scares them is, yes, he's had three fights in the UFC, all three incredibly short, but all three against opponents who 
there's question marks over their UFC worthiness. Like, John Phillips, in my opinion, was nowhere near being in the UFC. Like, even back when he was fighting in cage rage, I didn't think that the guy was good enough to be at that sort of level. Reese McKay was undersized. He only got two matches, and the UFC decided to cut him. And yeah, GM3 has a lot of experience. And I personally, I, I love GM3 in terms of being that sort of dirty, gritty brawler. But he is a notoriously slow starter, and Hamzat took advantage of that. So all three of Hamzat's opponents have all got this sort of question mark surrounding them. So we still don't really know how good or bad the guy is. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. Um, I'm glad you didn't slander GM3 too much there because I also love GM3. Um, I would pick GM3 in a rematch against Chamayev. Give me 6-1, to one, give me 7-1, to one, whatever the odds are. I'm picking GM3. He, he just beat Murdov as a 6-1 to underdog. He can do it again. I, I have full faith in him. But that's a... A separate argument for another day but yeah i do agree this is going to be probably his biggest test of his career he's cutting back down to 170 um and i mean like you said reese mckee probably his toughest welterweight opponent besides this so i mean he is jumping up from the 110th ranked welterweight in the world to the 10th best welterweight in the world so huge jump for chemayev um, but the the skills the guys has has shown in his fight, I think will translate. I mean, I think he has a legitimate uh, skill set. He's a great athlete. His striking is improving. He has power in his hands, and everyone knows that he's an incredible grappler too. So I think that his skill has really spoken for itself, even though his opponents aren't the best. Never gone the distance. Never gone into the third round in any of his nine fights. And if you look at these opponents pre UFC, these were good level opponents as well. Yeah, I remember watching you know his pre UFC fights, and he did kind of stop them. He did knock one guy out with like a vicious uppercut. But um, yeah, I mean that's a good point about him not going late in the fights. He hasn't been in round three before. Um, you know he's coming off of some COVID issues. We definitely got to talk about that. He was supposed to fight in December of last year. Um, you know had a brief retirement announcement. Who knows what that was about? Maybe that was lost in translation or something. But um, you know he did briefly say he was thinking about retirement uh, earlier on this year when he was having a lot of issues with COVID and coughing up blood and whatnot. So. With the welterweight cut down to 170, he hasn't done that since the McKee fight. And coming off of the long layoff, coming off the COVID, a lot of question marks around Shemaya. But it seems like the public, the bookmakers, don't care about that at all because he's still a 5-1 to one favorite here over Jing Liang. Um, so that just speaks to how uh, favorable this matchup is for him. This is, however, a two-man fight. We need to talk about Li Jing Liang. And if you're looking for an, an undercard guy that nearly always delivers, nearly gives you an entertaining fight all the time, Leach could be one of those guys. I think four of his last five fights have been performance-winning bonuses, either from his own end or fight of the night. He used to be, quite appropriately given his nickname, the Leach, he used to be a very lay and prey sort of fighter, grinding people out, a lot of dull matches. And he's just become this very entertaining brawler. And he's posted some good wins as well. You, of course, mentioned the uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio win. Um, and his only loss in his past five was to Neil Magny. And no shame in losing to Neil Magny. Yeah, that is a good point. And I like Jing a lot. You know, fun guy. But the fight that you just mentioned, the Magny fight, I mean, is just such a horrible look. I mean, rewatching that fight, you see Jing Liang initiate the clinch for some reason. I mean, if you thought that, you know, thinking about that matchup, you'd think... 
Jing Liang wants to keep it at range. He wants to use his boxing. No, he initiated the clinch. And then Magni does what he does best. He reverses that clinch. He grinds you out. He takes you down. And he just makes it a dirty, grindy fight like he always does. And he just completely grinded Jing Liang out there. Took him down several times. Kept top position. And I think that's just a horrible look for this fight. Because if uh, Magni was able to do that so uh, effectively... What is Chimaev, who's a more potent striker, what's Chimaev going to be able to do? He probably has more uh, damaging top game, better ground and pound. I, I think it's probably going to be a rough night at the office for Jing Liang. It really becomes a matter of which method do you think Chimaev is going to win by? And I'll let you start that one off, uh, Carl. I, I assume you're picking Chimaev. What method are you going by? I will be picking Chimaev to win this one. I'm going for the second round. I think it's going to be a ground and pound sort of like the, the quintessential Khabib smash session. I As much as I do like Leach, and I think it would be a good story if he was able to pull off this upset, I just think that brawling, aggressive style he has plays right into Hamzat's wrestling. So I don't see this one being competitive. I think Chimaev wins this one, second round ground and pound, and we see him against somebody in the top five next. I'm glad you said ground and pound because I'm going with submission. Second round submission. I'm pretty sure it's going to end in the second round. Um, so we'll be back next week and we'll see whether it was second round uh, knockout or submission. And we'll see who the real uh, fight predictor between us is. That's a good point there because we've got two preview shows in the next two weeks. So we can easily rub it in each other's faces when one of us gets it right, one of us gets it wrong. True, true. But, you know, one thing I'm noticing about this card is every... Um, main card fight is more than a two to one underdog. The closest fight is the Sanhagen fight at exactly two to one. So unfortunately, you pointed this out before, but not too many evenly matched matchups on this card. There's a lot of good fights, a lot of great fighters, but we kind of lack that that uh, competitive matchup feel to some of these fights. Someone said on social media that it feels like a fight card which is catered to the locals. It's Russian and Dagestani fighters in favorable matchups. Mm -hmm. they, and they always do that. They've been doing that since they went to Russia in, in 2018. So um, I don't I don't disagree with it. I still think it's going to be a fun card. Well, certainly hope so. And speaking of fun fights, we've got another one here. It's in the heavyweight division. It's Alexander Volkov taking on almost sort of like the forgotten resurgent man of 2020, Marcin Dubuva. Because... When people think about fighters who had good 2020s, they think about guys like Kevin Holland, etc. And here's Marcin Dubura, who won four fights in a calendar year, derailed the Greg Hardy hype train. He's got back his ranking in the top 10, and he's going up, and his reward for that is the guy up against Volkov. And it's interesting to look at where Alexander Volkov stands when it comes to the UFC heavyweight division, because through no fault of his own, he's almost sort of become this, this heavyweight gatekeeper. His three recent losses have been Derek Lewis, Steve Garn, and Curtis Blitz, who are all ranked in the top five. So here's Volkov sort of now at the stage where he can't really face someone higher up than him. So now he's having to fend off people to try and protect his place in the top five. Yeah, I mean, great assessment of both. You nailed it on both guys. Um, you know, I like Tabura, I think, a lot more than Volkov. The guy's been a good underdog for the past year. Um, had some pretty bad performances uh, back in 2019, I believe, but then bounced right back. And, you know, that's why he was that good underdog for that year, because he had a bad year beforehand. People were low on him. And then he started winning fights in underdog fashion. And I, I like the way the guy fights. He knows how to, to problem solve, to adapt mid-fight. He knows how to 
uh, tie up when he's hurt on the feet. He knows that he needs to get the fight down to the floor when he's losing the striking. So I think the guy's a smart fighter. He knows how to make a, a tactical change mid-fight, but... This is a tough, tough matchup for him because Tabura's biggest problem is his striking is not that good. He's he's pretty hittable. Um, Shamil Abdurahimov outboxed him, knocked him out. Augusto Sakai knocked him out. Greg Hardy was hurting him on the feet. Even Walt Harris get, got him in a little bit of trouble in his last fight. And in a lot of those fights... Um, he has been relying on getting the fight to the floor. He took Greg Hardy down. He took Walt Harris down and was able to TKO them. But those guys just aren't good defensive grapplers. And he's fighting Volkov, who isn't some elite takedown defense artist, but he knows how to stuff a takedown. He knows how to get back up off of his feet. Even guys like Curtis Blades weren't completely dominating him. Um, Blades would drag him down to his knees. Volkov would stand up and... Blades would just kind of hold on, knee his legs. Not a whole lot happened in that fight, but uh, Volkov is very hard to get like flat on the mat with his shoulders on the mat. I mean, he's really hard to get in those positions. So I think Tabura is going to have an issue getting his grappling going in this fight. The best I think Tabura is going to get is what I just mentioned, one of those takedowns against the cage where he's kind of holding the back from the clinch. You know, maybe he wins a minute or two. Maybe he wins a round. I just can't see him having enough sustained success to win two out of three rounds here. So Volkov is probably going to piece this guy up on the feet, sadly. And um, Volkov probably keeps it on the feet. Maybe finds a knockout in the later rounds. But I'll go with uh, a decision for Volkov. I'll go with, uh, you know, a 29-28, 30-27 decision. What are you thinking about this matchup? And the other thing that Volkov is also very good at is when he gets taken down. A lot of the guys, Curtis Blades, Fabrizio Verdum, both come to mind. Yes, they were able to get Volkov down, but they couldn't do anything with him. And if anything, Volkov's defensive grappling on the ground was tiring those people out. I mean, Curtis Blades mm. was knackered by the end of that fifth round. And yep. you could also see as well up against Verdum. Uh, I think Verdum took the first two rounds. Volkov took the third. And you could see Verdum again just tiring, just getting worn down by Volkov's anti-grappling. And eventually just got to the stage where Vadum was like, I can't do any more grappling-wise. I need to try and finish this guy on the feet. And that's when Volkov finished him. And that was really sort mm -hmm. of like the breakout moment for Alexander Volkov as well. I've been high on him ever since then. The yeah, I, I remember that fight clearly. Yeah, he has really good guard. Uh, that's what you, you just pointed out. Even when he gets taken down, he can just put you in his guard, squeeze you, make it really hard for you to pass. So the guy is like really hard to get good positions on on the ground. And he's also eliminated one of the other big concerns that Volkov had was that a very good technical striker uses his reach very well, but he never had that power. And as we saw against Walt Harris, as we saw against Alistair Overeem, okay. he started to bulk up a little bit and he is hitting people very hard. He can crack now. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking that Overeem could have some success in that fight, but man, I mean, Volkov just shut him down and beat him up. That was a pretty sad fight to watch, to be honest. But, um, you know, you got to think that that Overeem, even though even 2020 Overeem, you got to think that he's a better striker, more dangerous than Tabura, you know, certainly a lot quicker than Tabura. And Volkov was able to dust him pretty easily and get a finish. So this fight kind of becomes an issue of is Volkov going to finish him or is it going to be a decision? Would you have a pick uh, with that, Carl? I'm leaning towards decision. I can see mm -hmm. Volkov hurting Tabura, but Tabura is quite durable. We saw that when he fought Fabrizio Verdum, 25 minutes. So he's he's able to take a lot of punishment and still 
persevere until the end of the fight. So I think Volkov is going to, I'm not going to say dominate this fight, but I think he's going to use his reach. He's going to piece him up. I don't see Tabura being able to get the takedowns that he needs to grind out a decision. So I'm picking Volkov by decision. Yeah, and Volkov doesn't have that that necessarily one punch power. It's kind of a more attritional combination. So, um, yeah, and it, he's really gonna have to pour it on to get uh to get Tabura out of there. So I see the decision pick, but I'll I'll just pick third round knockout so we have a little bit of uh, <laughs> differentiation. So I'll go third round knockout for Volkov. Yep, and I'm right in saying that Volkov is the only fighter in the UFC to take a round off Cyril Gan. Um. I think one. Yeah, that, that, that I think sounds one, about right. I think one of the judges scored a forty-nine, forty-six. I think. Yeah, I, I think I don't think the majority did. Let, that, that'll be something to look up. I'll look that up right now. Yep. And while you do that, I'll do a little bit of spring cleaning and say if you are enjoying this preview show here, then please support us on our Patreon channel. It's patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. And if you like what you're seeing here on INC Live, then of course go over to the main channel. We've got uh, plenty of videos coming up. Uh, one that's actually going to be released the week of UFC 267, which I'm really looking forward to. A little bit of a connection to this week's main event as well. So I'll let you try and put uh, two and two together and see if you can work out what the video is going to be about. Uh, John, if people want to see uh, any of your future exploits, where's the best place to go? You can check me out um, at UFO underscore UFC on Twitter. And you can find my podcast where I talk about the betting odds for every UFC fight. Um, Martian MMA on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can find the podcast with me and my co-host Ozzy. And uh, we love talking about bets. We give out good winning bets nonstop. And just to update you on what I was talking about, um, Volkov won one round on one card, yeah, but he did not get the majority. So technically, no one has won a majority round of Ergon in his entire career. But Volkov got the closest. Managed to uh, subtly slide in there that um, little bit of a plug for our our exploits elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that with Bisping, like when Bisping and uh, Lewis always used to do their uh, podcast together, they would always try and subtly slide in all their plugs for, I don't know, Dave's Killer Bread and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any sponsors that, uh, Blue Chew, use the code Martian to get, uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> eventually, eventually, DraftKings are sponsoring everyone these days, so give us a call, give us a call. Right, or Patty Power over at uh, maybe a British book or something. Yeah. Um, we're moving on to the lightweight division now. Now, this was a fight that originally wasn't planned for this card. It was supposed to be Islam Markachev taking on Rafael Dos Anjos. They've been wanting to do that one for the past 12 months or so. But stepping in on short notice is a guy who just fought at UFC 266. Dan Hooker steps in on short notice. He's sacrificing a lot. He's sacrificing, obviously, seeing his family for the next four or five months to actually take part in this fight. Big step for Dan Hooker to step in on short notice. Does he have a chance against a guy who many people are calling the new Khabib? Yeah, one point you brought up is that thing about New Zealand. And I think they have, what, like a six or seven week quarantine coming in and out of the country. So uh, Hooker is sacrificing so much to, to do these fights and... You really got to respect the guy for that. And also just taking a fight against a matchup that, that no one really wants. I mean, RDA, the guy who says yes to every matchup, who probably has the toughest strength of schedule in UFC history. 
of course, RDA is going to accept the fight. I mean, he's a crazy guy. But you got a fellow crazy motherfucker in Dan Hooker taking the fight on, what, one or two weeks notice? Uh, maybe a little longer, maybe two or three weeks. Um, but not having a lot of time to prepare for that matchup. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, RDA versus Felder, where Felder is, you know, this you know tough guy who personifies being ready at any time. And he kind of accepted that fight. He made the way he, he was down to just scrap at any time. But unfortunately for him, the matchup is really bad. And... You know, accepting the fight on short notice might not be the best career move. Hooker is coming off of a lot of momentum dominating Nasrat on that pay-per-view that you'd mentioned. And, you know, he's kind of gambling all of that momentum versus Hooker here. But the guy believes in himself. Um, he he thinks that he can win the matchup. And, you know, he does have a small, small chance. But the odds currently have Islam 7-1 to favorite, which is a little bit above 86% favorite for Islam. And, you know, Islam's not going to be winning the fight if it's striking. You know, I think that's pretty clear to everyone. So that basically means that people, the market thinks that Islam is more than 86% likely to take down Hooker and to outgrapple him for the win. So that's just crazy, isn't it? Over 85% confident that he's going to take him down. So that just shows how incredible of a grappler Islam is. Certainly so. And it also shows how high a lot of the punters are rating Makachev. Um, a lot of that may well be down to the fact that he trains with Khabib. Khabib's spoken very highly about his prospects. The comparisons between the two are always inevitably going to be there. So if you had to gauge, if you had to sell to people, sort of like the difference, what is it that Islam does better than Khabib? What does Khabib do better than Islam? Etc, etc. Is it just a basic like-for-like -like situation? No, I mean, I think they're... They have some same characteristics like a lot of the Dagestani guys do, but I think they're, you know, quite different. First, you have Islam, who's a Southpaw, um, Khabib, who is Orthodox, and that's probably one of the biggest glaring differences. But the way they move on the feet is, is much different. Khabib has more of an aggressive style. He doesn't really pay attention to where his feet are at at all times. Um, you know, you've seen that throughout his career where he kind of is almost running at his opponents on the feet. Um Islam, a lot more technical, has his feet underneath him a lot better. I think he moves, has a little bit better understanding of footwork. And Islam, I think, disguises his takedowns a little bit better because he, he looks like a striker at times. He moves like a striker. Meanwhile, Khabib just kind of always uh, plotted forward uh, in an aggressive way looking to get that takedown. And I think that you could even argue that Islam's open space takedowns, his pure wrestling skill, is right up to par if not better than Khabib because Islam does have I think uh, a deeper arsenal of takedowns um, the Armand Sarukian fight is a really good uh, fight to prove that um, but once they get on top um, I think they also have a difference in their style and Islam is more um, control oriented he's more focused on uh, position meanwhile Khabib more focused on ground and pound uh, like you know throwing a lot more ferocious strikes on top while Islam is kind of content to keep top position and more so look for submissions while Khabib is just trying to change your face with that ground and pound so similar but also a good amount of differences. And the other thing that people are going to bring up when it comes to Markachev as well is something that Khabib never had. People are going to see that record, 20 wins, 1 loss, Adriano Martins at UFC 192. Is that maybe an indicator that for all of the hype that Markachev has, and a lot of it is warranted, he can be caught? 
Yeah, but I think that was what you, you 192. Yes, yeah, so that was 2015. You know, 60 years ago. Um, you know, probably to the month. I think it was October of of uh, 2015. And he's gotten a lot better since then. Um, his striking has gotten better, um, but he really hasn't had his, his his chin check since then. He hasn't uh, faced many high level strikers, and you know, make no mistake about it, Dan Hooker is going to be the better striker, much better boxer, and. I don't think Islam is going to want to be engaging in the feet at all much. I don't think he's going to be throwing many strikes at distance. He is going to be staying on the outside, staying at kicking range. Um, and he's probably going to be not trying to engage in the striking at all and just looking for that perfect time to set up his takedown attempt because, um, you know, Hooker is a nasty striker, man. The guy has nasty straight punches he's got those powerful knees up the middle he knows how to kick the legs really well he knows how to dig to the body hooker is a much much better striker and you know if this were a kickboxing match the odds would be reversed um at, hooker would be the seven to one favorite so it's really a matter of what range can the guy keep the fight in can hooker keep the fight standing unfortunately for him though Based on his fights where we see him wrestle, where we see extended grappling sequences, uh, I'm looking at two fights in particular. Uh, the most recent one being Dustin Poirier, who was able to take him down in the later rounds. Hooker started really fast in those fights, uh, but faded and was you know pretty soundly beaten in rounds three, four, and five. And then way back in 2017, the Jason Knight fight. We saw Jason Knight get a few takedowns. We saw him get a few back takes. He got close to a rear naked choke once or twice. And seeing that, I just don't really feel comfortable uh, putting much or any faith into Dan Hooker because I just think those grappling exchanges will be so in favor of Islam. I don't trust the takedown defense of Hooker. And he's probably going to have to knock Islam out on the way in in order for him to win the fight. But unfortunately for Hooker, he doesn't really have that one-shot knockout power. He's more of an attritional type of guy. Maybe he can time some crazy knee, some crazy uppercut. He does have those nasty knees up the middle. So, you know, that's how Hooker's going to win. He has a small window, but if he can't win by knockout in the first round, I just think that the top pressure, the top game of Islam will be too much, and he's going to run away with it in the second or third round. And another fight where it feels like we're picking decision or outcome, and I will be going with submission. I'll pick, uh, let's go with a round three submission for Islam. I'm going to pick Markachev by submission as well. I'm going to say in the second round. What you did say, though, is, in my opinion, the biggest... If Dan Hooker's going to win this fight, this is how he's going to do it. He does have some very, very good timing. He knows exactly how to read people coming in. Like, the one that comes to mind for me was when he fought Ross Pearson. Pearson comes charging in, and he times that knee right up the middle, one-punch knockout. Same with what he did against James Vick. Timed that in and managed to get that big right hand. He can do that against Markachev. Like, if there's one thing I've noticed about Islam Markachev is when he is striking, you can see he sort of has this, this rhythm, and you can time mm -hmm. when he's coming in. So if Dan Hooker is going to win this one, that's how he's going to do it. But as you said, though, the chances of that happening are, in my opinion, very slim. I think Markachev is going to get the takedown. He's going to wear him down in the first round and then get the job done in the second. Yeah, that's sadly what's going to you know, happen as well. I mean, it would be insane if that knee up the middle landed, um, you know, and set Islam out. That would be, you know, probably one of the all-time great MMA moments. Crazy upset, five to one underdog. Um, 
But in terms of a bet for this fight, I mean, you got Islam, or you got Hooker, who is, I believe, you know, uh, an A minus type of fighter as a five to one underdog. You know, very rare that you get that high quality of a fighter as that high of an underdog. So maybe just throw some chump change on Hooker, uh, you know, for the fun of it. Maybe some Hooker knockout bets. Um, but sadly, uh, Makachev is probably going to submit him here in the later rounds. I tell you what I am going to do, John, um, just maybe to go on a bit of a tangent and re-enter the real world, is obviously the time difference here between the UK and the US, it's getting very dark outside, so I'm going to have to turn on a little bit of mood lighting, if that's okay with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's totally cool with me. Maybe some disco ball? You have any... Uh... <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I had a disco ball going here. No, it's just a normal um led light or those um energy efficient ones so at least it'll brighten it up so nice i like that good ambiance i like to feel like a, you know like That's we're on a date there, on a saturday it? night or something you know shows how much of a pro show we have that we don't even have professional lighting rigs yet uh, i don't think any of the inc live listeners are gonna hold it that against you i mean they're here week in and week out watching no matter what. They're diehards. Yes. Um, they would watch us they would watch us in the dark with uh with turtle beach microphones if that's what it came to. Well let's hopefully it will never be that situation. It's time <laughs> It's time for us to talk about our core main event, and it is for the UFC interim bantamweight title. Piotian, the former champion, will hope to try and regain UFC gold. But to do so, he needs to take on one of the division's best knockout artists in Corey the Sandman Sandhagen. Little bit of backstory to go along with this one. Of course, remember UFC 259. Piotr made the defense of his belt up against Aljamain Sterling. He's dominating that fight, and then fourth round, he lands an illegal knee that Sterling isn't able to recover from. Sterling is given the title by default. The rematch is supposed to take place at this pay-per-view. Unfortunately, Aljo ends up injured, injured I should say, and Corey Sandhagen steps in on short notice to fight for the interim belt. Now, I'm seeing a lot of people who are divided in regards to this fight. On the one hand, it's Piotr versus Corey Sandhagen, five rounds with a belt on the line. You can inject that into my veins. This, on paper, could be a fantastic matchup. But we are also seeing people who are quite rightly pointing out these are two guys who are both coming off losses. The first time in UFC history, two people will fight for the belt having lost their last fight. Does this somewhat damage the integrity of this fight and of this belt? The fact that both of them have ended up losing. My answer to that is hell no. Um, because, you know, both of those guys didn't really lose those fights between you and me. Um, Sandhagen, most people scored that fight for him. I think given him rounds two, three, and five. Um, and it was an extremely close fight, but I think when you look at the damage in that fight, I, I do think Sandhagen did more damage. Um, and uh, TJ probably got a little bit fortunate to win that split decision. Jan was on his way to uh, either a fifth-round knockout or a 49-46 decision over Aljamain. And... You know, that was cut short by the illegal knee. So both these guys not really coming off of losses between you and me. And it's an incredible fight. Um, they were kind of rushing Aljamain into this rematch. They wanted Jan to fight at uh, Fight Island. It seemed like um, Aljamain was a little bit reluctant to, but he eventually did sign the contract. And 
it seemed like he had some neck neck issue, I believe. He has a neck injury, and he basically said that he would hit a wall after two rounds of sparring, and he just didn't feel 100%. So um, the fight is being postponed. Um, but that's cool with me because, I mean, we already saw Jan versus Aljamain. We kind of already know who the better fighter is in that matchup. We got ourselves a fresh matchup here. Uh, I think a more entertaining stylistic matchup. And uh, I mean, I can't wait for it. I mean, this is a, an A++ fight, as good as MMA gets. And uh, huge fans, both these guys, bigger fan of Jan. But I have some concerns about this matchup, honestly. And I'm very curious to hear. I'm very curious to hear what those concerns are. I should point out the booking uh, bookmakers odds for this one here. Uh, Corey Sandhagen is a plus 200 underdog for this one. You can get Piotr Jan at minus 240. Uh, I have to say, though, that the INC viewers on our opinion poll are giving Piotr Jan much more chance than what the bookmakers are. At the moment, 78% of people are picking Piotr Jan to win this one. So just 22% for Corey Sandhagen. Are you surprised by that? Yeah, so 22%. Um, the odds currently have him at 33%. So I guess uh, the INC Live fans are one one third less confident in him than the odds are. Um, but yeah, I think that's a little bit too high uh, for Jan. Um, I'll start by voicing my concerns with Jan is that the guy tends to start slow. You know, he um, doesn't come out of round one, doesn't come out of the gate firing a high amount of strikes. He likes to, to download that information and make some reads. And then he starts unleashing that volume as the fight goes. And he is really, really accustomed to being a five-round fighter. Um, we saw in some three-round fights of his, like the Jimmy Rivera fight, that fight was really close. Um, and if it went into the full five rounds, I think that Jan would have, you know, put a firm stamp on that fight, but it just shows that Jan was kind of used to fighting five rounds before we got to the UFC. And he still kind of has that five round style. Um, round one and two versus Aljamain were both very competitive. He dropped Aljamain in round one, then went on to, to lose round two. But the second round three started, you see Jan start to up the pressure, up the output and starts to really, you know, put Aljamain on the back foot and starts to do good work. And I think that's, what's going to happen here is that Jan's going to start slow like he typically does. Corey's going to be pumping out that volume. And there's a good chance that, that Corey wins round one and that he might even win the first two rounds, honestly. Um, and then I think Jan is going to start to, to pick up the pace to start to dig to the body, start to get his game plan going, uh, which I think is going to be incorporated in the clinic and incorporating wrestling as much as possible because Corey Sanhagen is simply just not a good wrestler. He just doesn't do well in these wrestling grappling positions. He has that long, lanky frame, which is often not good for wrestling. And we've seen throughout several of his UFC fights him be in bad grappling positions. He's in deep submission attempts. He's getting controlled. Um, and TJ Dillashaw was able to get there a lot. He got to that clinch. He got to that back clinch situation where TJ is just holding him from the back, kneeing his thighs, dragging him back down to the mat. And TJ Dillashaw got a significant amount of time from that back clinch in their fight. And I think that Jan's going to want to do the same. We saw in the Aljamain fight that this guy can not only offensively strike and defensively grapple, he can hit his own offensive takedowns. He can reverse your takedown attempt and take you down in the process. So I think that we're going to see Jan's grappling, Jan's clinch game coming to, uh, to play here. And uh, I'll pass it back to you before I give my official prediction. I think it's a good thing that you pointed out Piotr Jan's slow starts as well, because that was a point I was going to make. Like Jimmy Rivera, in my opinion, 
he could have very easily won that first round if it wasn't for that knockdown right at the end. And even in the second round, Rivera was causing some problems. Um, and we saw it also with John Dodson, that he was quite a slow starter in the first round. And even Uriah Faber, who was like 4,000 years old by the time they fought. <laughs> even Faber had a decent run in that first round. It was only in the second where sort of like the age and the quality of Piotr Jan showed. And when you look at what Corey Sandhagen's been able to do at the start of his fight, the flying knee up against Frankie Edgar, he nearly caught TJ Dillashaw in a triangle uh, right, at the start of, um, right at the start of their fight. So Corey Sandhagen mm-hmm. can start fights very well as well. So there is a chance of Sandhagen catching them early. I agree with you, though. I think that Piotr Jan, he is a five-round fighter, and he's going to start working the body. I don't trust Corey Sandhagen's striking defense, and I can see Piotr Jan winning this one by targeting the body and just Corey Sandhagen wilting by the end of the fourth round. Um, yeah, I like that pick as well. The, I think the body work, considering that Sandhagen is the one taking this fight on, on short notice, Sandhagen is going to have to travel a whole lot further than Jan is for this one. And, you know, the, the fight against TJ was only, what, three months ago? And I think he struggled a lot in that fight. I mean, TJ coming off a two-and-a-half-year layoff um, was able to get a lot of that clinch, that a lot of that control time I was talking about. And I just don't think that Corey is really making significant improvements in his defensive grappling. Like, I have very little doubt in my mind that, that Al Jermaine would do the same exact thing that he did to him the first time if they rematched. Um, because if you're letting TJ Dillashaw... He was kind of slow and hittable at range in that fight. You know, he got dropped by Corey in round two. Even he was able to to persevere through that striking, able to get inside and get that clinch. Uh, Aljamain's a lot more elusive and janky. He always has that way to get inside on you. And I, I have, have seen nothing from Sandhagen to think that he would, uh, that, that fight against Aljamain would go any differently. And in that last fight, uh, Aljamain versus Jan, we saw that Jan is actually a better wrestler than Aljamain is. I mean, anytime Aljamain attempted a takedown, Jan would easily reverse it and hit his own takedown. He had seven takedowns versus Aljamain. Um, so I think that Corey is going to, or excuse me, I think that Peter is going to mix in the wealth of his skills to win this fight. Um, I think he will lose the first round or two. Um, he's definitely going to lose one of those rounds, in my opinion, but he's going to pick it up the pace. He's going to start digging into the body, and he's just going to use his uh, huge arsenal of skills to break Corey down as the fight goes. I think uh, rounds three, four, and five pretty heavily favor Peter Jan here, and I think he's going to pull away with either a uh, a late four or five round stoppage, like you said, or a 49-46 type of decision for for Jan here. Do you think we can see Piotr Jan potentially using his wrestling a lot in this fight, bearing in mind the success that Sterling had against Sandhagen? Yeah, I, d- I definitely think we will. Um, I think Corey's size, his length, his output is going to give Jan problems at range. And one thing I ha- I'm having nightmares about already because I rewatched the Aljamain fight yesterday, and Aljamain got close with two flying knees in the- their first fight. And we know well that Corey loves throwing those flying mm-hmm. knees. So I'm kind of scared about that. But Corey also loves throwing spinning strikes. And TJ was able to time a lot of those spinning strikes and able to get that clinch, get those takedowns. And I do think that Corey's you know, versatile striking is going to open up those uh opportunities to be controlled to be taken down and i don't think jan's gonna you know take him down and hold him down for four minutes but i think in rounds when the the striking is close that that clinch game that takedown game of jan is going to be the x factor to swing these rounds in favor of jan 
It's going to be a very interesting fight. And as mentioned before, the bookmakers have this one as the closest fight on the main card. Um, I'm leaning towards Piotian to win this one. I assume you're feeling the same way. I am. But in terms of a bet, though, I think Corey at 2-1 to one is going to look good in the first 10 minutes. I think if you want to bet Jan in this fight, uh, look to live bet him. I think five, ten minutes into the fight, the line is going to be a lot tighter than it is now. So... I don't knock a bet on Corey at all. I think he's going to start well. I just don't think he can really sustain that against the more versus Highland adaptive fighter. And who do you think the UFC are rooting for to win this fight? Because both of these guys are going to be fighting a rematch with Aljamain Sterling. Um, Piotr Jan, of course, many people see him as the uncrowned champion. Corey Sandhagen with his fighting style might be that sort of casual friendly fighter that the UFC may fail that the bantamweight division needs. That's a good question, honestly. I would lean towards Jan um, because they did give him uh, Aldo versus Jan, you know, for the... Was that an interim title at that the time? That was the full thing. I think so, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, so who because, vacated uh, oh, the because... belt and then they did Jan okay. versus Aldo. Yeah, so I, I think that's, you know, that kind of points in, in the favor of Jan. Um, but, you know, Corey's active. He's an extremely fun fighter. I think the UFC is, is kind of indifferent. I'd say like 51% of them want uh, Jan to win. But I, I think there's a lot of people who would like uh, Sanhagen to win too. It's time for us to talk about our main event of the evening. Or should it be the afternoon, bearing in mind it's in Abu Dhabi. The UFC light heavyweight title is on the line. And this is a match which, back in 2018, when Glover Tashira had just lost to Corey Anderson... Jan Blachowicz was on the fringes of the top 15. Did you ever think that this fight would be for a UFC light heavyweight title? Jan Blachowicz versus Glover Teixeira, champion versus number one seed in Abu Dhabi. You can't make it up. No, hell no. How could anybody predict this? Even, even before the Blachowicz-Adesanya fight, I was thinking, damn, I really wish I did blahovich Teixeira because I think that Blahovich is going to lose and then we might never get to see Glover get his title shot again. Uh, but, you know, that fight did not go the way I expected. Blahovich pulled off the upset. And now we have, you know, the greatest old man fight in UFC history. Uh, Blahovich is, what, 38? Uh, Glover's 41. Um, I love both of these guys. They're both extremely entertaining fighters. I mean, I, don't, I think if you dislike either one of these guys, then there's something wrong with you because two of the most likable guys, uh, the most, you know, just down to earth, cool guys in the sport. So um, love to see them get in this spotlight and, uh, you know, can't wait for the matchup. I've actually done the research. It's actually the second oldest UFC title fight of all time. Uh, any guesses what number one is? Randy Couture versus Tim Sylvia. It was actually the uh, fight just behind me there. Michael Bisping versus Dan Henderson. Damn it. <laughs> I really thought I was close to that yeah, one. Wasn't Randy Couture like 45 or something when he won the heavyweight title? I think Randy was 43, but Tim was quite young. So that uh, sort of okay. knocks it back again. Bisping was 37 and Dan Henderson 46. So this is the second oldest. Wow. <laughs> 46. Man. UFC matchmaking oh, man. at its finest. I have to say, though... As much as we sort of make jokes about the ages of these two fighters, you've got to say, this isn't a fluke situation. Glover Teixeira, five wins in a row, a lot of them against guys who are sort of 10 years younger than he is. Jan Blachowicz won 10 of his past 11 fights, which bearing in mind, when he started in the UFC, he went 2-4, and four, he just lost to Patrick Cummings. 
It's been a remarkable turnaround for both men, and you have to give them a lot of praise for that. Oh yeah, they've they've both earned it, um, especially Glover. Um, I was kind of pissed that that they were doing the Adesanya fight because I thought that Glover deserved it. I mean, at the time um, when Kudalaba and Krylov were still ranked, I think he had four wins in the top ten or twelve, and they were all finishes too. I'm like, this guy finished four of the top fifteen guys, and he's still not getting a title shot. What more does he have to do? Um, but he got a little bit of good fortune by Blahovich beating Adesanya there. Um, you never know what Adesanya would, would have done. He might have gone back down to middleweight. Um, John Jones might have come back. Glover could have easily got skipped over there. But he's finally getting his title shot. Um, it might be one of the biggest uh, gaps between title shots in UFC history, too. I know you like stats like that. But seven and a half years, it was uh, April 26th of 2014. So almost six and a half years to the day or seven and a half years to the day. Um, and I'm just, you know, so excited to see Glover fight for the title again. He's deserved it. He's been, you know, an underdog money train uh, for the past few fights. He's had some crazy comeback fights. Um, both of his most recent fights were, were pretty crazy comebacks. Um, got dropped hard versus Santos twice, got uh, outstruck versus Anthony Smith and was able to pull both those fights back and finish them. So the guy is just so resilient, so well-rounded. And, you know, I, I love Glover. And that's been, you pointed out a big reason for Glover Tashira's turnaround as well, which is if you look at any of these fights during this current run, he suffers a lot of early adversity. Carl Roberson nearly finished him right at the start of this five fight winning streak with those big Travis Brown elbows. And yet he was able to persevere, he grinded it out, and was able to finish them on the ground with his trademark arm triangle. And that's sort of been the big template for Glover Tashira, early adversity and then turning it into a dirty, grimy grappling match. And we've seen that work against Anthony Smith, we saw that work especially well against Thiago Santos. Does it maybe highlight some of the weaknesses of the light heavyweight division that, yes, Glover Tashira is a good wrestler, but he's not, he's not a Khabib-level grappler. And yet here he is still able to dominate people at 42 years old using this wrestling game. Oh, yeah, it definitely speaks to the quality of the division. Um, you know, the light heavyweight division is not a highly skilled division. I think it's fun. I think it's in a much more fun uh, spot now than it was um, for the past few years of the John Jones era, probably the most exciting since the DC um, Cormier feud back in 2017. Um, but it does, you know, speak volumes that this, you know, old guy, 42 years old, who is getting rocked on the feet, like you mentioned, Roberson hurt him. Um, Santos dropped him twice. I mean, Santos hasn't dropped anybody lately. I mean, the guy had that crazy knockout power for several years. But then over the past two years, the guy hasn't really hurt anybody. I mean, Johnny Walker, notoriously bad defense, notoriously bad chin. We never really saw Santos wobble him or hurt him significantly. But in the Santos versus Glover fight, that fight was striking for about two minutes in its entire fight. And Thiago Santos floored Glover twice in that fight. I mean, he hurt him bad in round one, and he completely dropped him in round three. So what I'm seeing there is at distance, Glover just has a hard time avoiding those punches. I mean, it seems like his chin could be depleting. Um, it seems like, you know, the guy is just getting hurt very frequently. Um, and it doesn't seem like he has the defense, the speed to be able to avoid those shots. So 
that really concerns me here with how potent of a striker and a great boxer in the pocket Jan Blahovic is. I think that at distance, Glover is going to be in some trouble and could get knocked out by one punch at any moment. Um, because, like I said, if, if Thiago Santos, who hasn't been looking like a good uh you know, good striker lately who hasn't been displaying much power. If he was able to completely floor Glover Teixeira twice in just a small amount of time they were striking, the much better striker in Blahovic, I think, is going to do the same thing. And that's a big concern as well when you bear in mind what Jan Blahovic is could potentially do. Like he talks about Polish power, and we've seen that when he fought Luke Rockhold. We saw that when he fought Dominic Reyes, that he can turn people's lights out with just one strike. But what's interesting about Jan Blachowicz, though, is we can easily point to what's caused Glover's turnaround in that he is going to this more grappling-heavy game. You can't really say that with Jan Blachowicz. Like, the Jan Blachowicz who fought Israel Adesanya is still very similar to the one that was losing to Pat Cummings. It's just the little tweaks, the little changes that have all come together to make this sort of, this very sort of well-rounded sort of Eastern European brawler. Yeah, I mean, I think each one of his past three fights, he's looked better than the last. Um, the Adesanya fight, he was making the striking exchanges close there. His jab was working well. He's got that great that great body kick of his, you know, that left those welts on Reyes' torso. And then the guy can also hit a double leg takedown and, and keep top position and do good work from top. Um We've seen uh, Blahovich fight in a lot of grappling fights. The Nikita Krylov fight had a lot of grappling in it. Uh, the Manoa fight. Um, Souza had a lot of clinching. Uh, the Jacare fight. Um, so I, I don't think that Glover, uh, that Jan is going to be taken by surprise by any of Glover's takedown defense. I think that, um, or excuse me, Glover's takedown attempts. I think that Jan is going to be able to dig under hooks. He's going to be able to stay safe if he does get on the ground. Unlike Thiago Santos, who is just going to recklessly scramble and give up his back, like Carl Robeson is going to give up his back and stuff. Uh, Blahovic is a much more, uh, you know, smart a much smarter defensive grappler. And I think that even if he gets put in a bad position, even if he gets briefly taken down, he's going to stay safe. He's going to work his way back up to the feet and he's going to get the fight back at striking range, which favors him pretty heavily here. I totally agree with you. And if you looked in Jan's like run, this sort of like 10 wins and 11, there's been a lot of guys who wanted to try and take him down. Ruluk Rockhold spent the entirety of his fight clinched up against the fence, trying to take him down. He couldn't do it. Same with, same with Jacare for 25 minutes. So the takedown defense does hold up. And especially with Glover being that sort of guy where Glover's not going to shoot in for a double leg. He's not that sort of out-and-out wrestler. He's very similar to sort of clinching against the fence and going for these trips uh, right up next to the fence. Jan's dealt with that plenty of times before. What I will say, though, is if Glover is able to get it to the ground, based on what I saw against Alexander Gustafsson, I don't think Jan is going to put up that much of a fight if he does get taken down. Yeah, I remember that fight. That that was, I think it's a little long ago to to be relevant here. But yeah, he did get taken down and just completely dominated by um, Gustafsson in that fight. But I think that um, the uh, the Manoa rematch is where he really turned a corner because that that's where a guy who beat him before they they fought back in 2015 um, Manoa was able to defeat him and I think that that's when we really started Blahovich being able to to turn the fight around to be able to make these tactical uh, decisions mid fight and um, I think that 
Yeah, I mean, if he gets if Glover gets flat uh, on top of uh, of Blahovich on the ground, I think Blahovich could be in some trouble. But I just think that Jan's going to find a way to to not get in those super dominant positions. Like he's not going to be completely flat on his back. He's going to be uh, on one knee. He's going to be against the cage, and you know, I just think that. Glover's takedown attempts are usually pretty telegraphed and desperate. Like he typically gets hurt with a strike and then shoots that attempt. And a guy like Thiago Santos, who is kind of wild and, um, you know, a little untechnical, he's going to get taken down by that. But I think a smarter fighter like Blahovic, who's going to be able to dig under hooks, um, fire off some knees to the bodies, maybe some elbows in the clinch. I don't think those those desperate takedowns are going to work for Glover in this fight. And you've also got to point out the inactivity as well. Glover's been out of action for nearly over a year. And when you are inactive for a long time, the impact that has is amplified the older you get. So we've got a 42-year-old Glover Toshiba who hasn't fought in over a year. Ring rust could potentially yep. be a much bigger factor than it would do for, say, a 24, 25-year-old. Definitely. Just about a year, about 51 months off, um, yeah, that's another good point. Um, and then the last point I want to mention in my notes, I had uh, Glover actually really struggled taking uh, Ian Kudaleba down. Um, the first seven or eight takedown attempts that Glover shot in that fight, Kudaleba was able to stuff them all. And even Nikita Krylov had some back and forth wrestling exchanges with Glover. Um, you know, they were both taking each other down and reversing each other in that fight. And Glover just uh, squeaked out a split decision in that fight. So. If, if Glover is struggling taking guys down and controlling them like Kudalaba and like Krylo, to uh, the late heavyweight champ Lovich here. It's safe to say that one of the other trends we've seen when it comes to Glover Toshiva is the INC viewers do not give him much of a chance. I've been looking through some of the <laughs> old opinion polls that we have on the channel. Uh, Glover's been on two main events since we started this, which is up against Anthony Smith and Thiago Santos. 15% of people picked him to beat Anthony Smith. He managed to break that one. 18% of people picked him to beat Thiago Santos. He managed to break that one. Just 11% of people are picking him to beat Jan Blachowicz. To put that into perspective, that's the same percentage that picked Megan Anderson to win her featherweight title fight. Oh my gosh. The disrespect. Y'all INC Live listeners, but well, it's technically INC listeners, not INC Live. We know you real cultured fans are on the INC Live. But those other people need to throw some respect on uh, Glover's name. I actually think that that's a confidence increase for Glover. Um, you know, I think you should reach out to him and tell him those numbers because, uh, you know, 15 percent. I mean, the, the uh, he was the underdog in both of those fights against Santos and Smith. Don't get me wrong, but not not exactly below 20 percent. Um, so this guy is, you know, the ultimate underdog. I don't think this is a good matchup for him. I think that the odds are right on this one with Blahovich being minus 250 or so. But, you know, it would be the complete story for Glover to, to complete this underdog fairy tale story by just getting another underdog finish. Um, but my pick, I don't know about you, it's going to be, uh, let's go with a, a second round knockout for Blahovich here. What about you? I'm in the same board. I'm going second round knockout. I think that a combination of the ring rust and how hard Jan Blachowicz hits, like Glover's had a lot of luck in surviving the sort of mm -hmm. scrambles, getting rocked by Santos, getting rocked by Roberson. That luck is going to run out at some point. I think it runs out this time. Um, that being said, that's what I'm thinking in terms of my gut and my head. My heart wants Glover to win this one just for that fairy tale ending. 
Yeah, that would be nice to see. But, um, you know, you got to go with the mind. You got to go with the evidence you have. And I'll, uh, I think that points to, to Jan pretty heavily, uh, you know, especially with Jan's cardio, you know, looking so good in his last fight um, versus uh, Adesanya. I just think the, the later the fight goes, um, it's going to favor Jan, too. And early on, Jan's going to have that potent power, and it's just going to be a tough night for Glover. So hopefully Glover doesn't get hurt. You know, hopefully he doesn't get knocked out too badly, but uh, I think it's going to be a uh, second or third round knockout for Jan. Final question before we wrap this one up. Is this Glover Teixeira's last fight win or lose? Um, no, I'm going to say no. I'd like to, even if he loses, I'd like to see him get, you know, a, a retirement fight. So that is the preview done for UFC 267. And I have to say, John, even though... Some of these fights may not be the most competitive. We've got a lot of star power. We've got a lot of intrigue. Abu Dhabi, I feel, adds a new sort of layer of the pay-per-view experience. And it's sort of the... I will put it this way. It's the starter for the main course of two fantastic weeks to be an MMA fan. Yeah, and don't don't let the odds fool you. I mean, Blahovic was a 2-1 to one underdog against Adesanya competitive fight that he won Blovich was a two to one underdog against Reyes a fight that he pretty much dominated so you know the, the odds are off all the time don't let just these odds uh fool you we're still gonna have um some competitive fun matchups a lot of star power like you said and it's just the beginning it's just the appetizer because next week 268 that is another insane pay-per-view probably the better pay-per-view of the two so I uh, hope you all enjoyed the fights and uh you know we're in the midst of an insane run, uh, an insane two-week run. So just sit back and enjoy it. Certainly so. And once again, if you do want to uh, support the channel in any way you can, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell so you never miss any of our content. We'll have previews, post-fight recaps coming up. We're hoping to try and get a few fighter interviews on this channel in the next couple of weeks. Uh, John, you've got your own personal channel. Once again, where's the best place to follow you? Yeah, so you can listen to the Martian MMA podcast or the Martian and Ozzy podcast with my buddy. Um, we talk about betting odds for every UFC fight. Search Martian MMA on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Twitter, Apple Podcasts. You can find me all over there. And, uh, you know, thanks to Carl. Thanks to the INC Live listeners for having me. And I'll be talking to you guys next week before 268. I was just about to ask that UFC 268 is coming up next week. You're going to be joining me once again for that one. Madison Square Garden, Usman versus Colby 2, Rose versus Whaley 2, Gagey versus Chandler. Crazy card. I'm really looking forward to that one. I hope you are as well. If you have enjoyed this one, I hope that you can tune in when we discuss UFC 268 in a lot more detail. For now, though, that is the end of the 267 show. My name's been Carl Bimbridge. That's been John Martian. And we hope to see you again soon. This is the INC. Thank you for watching.